Dr. Arik Kirschenbaum, thank you very much for joining me in this podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. So I've uh, just finished to read your uh, book, uh, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's a fascinating book. And uh, so the first thing I want to ask is about science fiction. And what I want to ask is that uh, if you look at uh, some of the movies, and you also mentioned some movies like uh, Star Trek and Contact, can you think of uh, some movies that uh, got uh, alien evolution right and others that got it wrong? Well, I mean, we can't be too critical of, of science fiction producers and directors, can we? They're there to, to make a lot of points. They're there to tell a story and to entertain. But they're also, science fiction has a role, right? It has a role in society besides telling us about aliens. It's telling us about ourselves. It's a way of sort of talking about humans and human behavior and human problems in a way that's one step removed. So it's not surprising that really most aliens in science fiction are human, actually. Um, occasionally you get, you get um, science fiction that really goes out of its way to, to portray something that, 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 that's more realistic to the way that alien life might be. But that, that, that's more for visual impact. So I think in movies like Avatar, we have these whole ecosystems and, and interacting animals and, and, and so on. And, and that's, that's very visual. That's, that's done for very visual purposes. Um, but no, mostly, mostly, you know, those, those aliens you see, they're humans. <laughs> they're definitely humans. You get the Vulcan, right? You know, the, Vul- the, the Vulcan struggling with logic and emotion. Th- these are issues we struggle with. Yeah, I, I think yesterday I was uh, looking at uh, some of the videos on Avatar and I saw that uh, they had this uh, little video, like I think five minutes, where they were talking about uh, the ecosystem in. Uh, uh, the ecology in, uh, in in Avatar and things like that. That's that's fascinating. I mean, it's all science fiction, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still it, it's still clearly based on a, on a on a Earth uh, ecology, and the animals are still pretty much Earth-like. But but it shows they've they've given some thought to the interactions between the animals, which is really what what makes them interesting. Yeah, and uh, so in your uh, book, in the last chapter of your book, you wrote, uh, "My main goal is to convince you that we can." know what uh, aliens are uh, like. So essentially, that's my vision of that, how I see that. So you essentially look at the uh, uh, general concepts and the rules of uh, life on our planet, and then basically you try to explain why these concepts might apply to alien life, uh, as long as uh, we have life in those exoplanets and so on. So what I want to ask is, uh, what was the motivation behind this book? And uh, are you trying to establish a new field of uh, exozoology? I think there's a there is a new field that will become uh, that will become relevant. I, I think it'll be well beyond my time, but um, but I do think it is it is important to start thinking about these things now, because we're moving beyond the point where we just have to worry about is there life? We will find life on other planets relatively soon, and then we have to start thinking about how it got there, how it evolved how it's going to evolve, what different kinds of life forms there may be. And this we can only really answer using, using the tools we've, we've developed on Earth to understand how life interacts, how, how one life form exploits another life form or, 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 or interacts with it, cooperates, parasitizes. All, all of these processes are processes that are taking place elsewhere in the universe as well. So let's say that we think in terms of uh, some very distant future where we have new rockets, uh, new rocket propulsion systems, and we've we discovered alien life and plenty of exoplanets. How do you envision the work of uh, an exozoologist in the future? 
that's far in the future. Yeah, <laughs> what very, you're describing very is very future. far. Who in even the knows if uh, we will reach that point? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. A, I fear that 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 traveling to to other star systems is is could could well be beyond our beyond our abilities and, and and beyond what we're ever going to do. But if we were to do that, so if we were to place ourselves in a sort of Star Trek universe where we can go to other worlds and and look at life on other planets, then the first thing that that we would do is exactly the same thing that we would do if we discovered a, an undiscovered island or continent on earth which is to understand how those the, the life there interacts one life form with another and then see where they came from why why they evolved that way and try and understand the processes that were going on why there are why they fly or, or don't fly why they crawl or don't crawl you and, and, and all of those all of those pressures and and interactions and constraints that are acting on life everywhere or life is constrained then then it's understanding those mechanisms is, is what what our our exozoologists will be doing when they when they set foot on these planets yeah so right now we have some new exciting uh, technological developments uh, for the detection and characterization of uh, new exoplanets. So we just launched the James Webb uh, Space uh, uh, Telescope. Uh, they are calibrating it right now, and uh, this will be able to characterize atmospheres in uh, exoplanets. Uh, we've also got uh, other projects. In five years, there will be a Roman Space uh, Telescope that will be able to detect 25 times more uh, exoplanets than the ones we know now. So now we know 4,000. That would be around... 100,000 exoplanets or something like that. And there are also planned missions to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. My question is, uh, are you planning to join uh, forces with uh, this new uh, emerging field or developing field of uh, uh, astrobiology? I think it's, I, 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 it's quite clear that, that the position I'm setting out is for the more distant future. Mm. I think we've got a long way to go before we can really talk about complex life because i'm really talking about complex life animals plants um something that 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 that's more than just bacteria more than just single cell organisms so so we've got a long way to go before we start discovering and understanding complex life on other planets i think there's a very good chance that we will discover biosignatures so we will discover gases in the atmosphere that that strongly imply the presence of of life of some sort But as I said, characterizing that that life and and really getting to know what it really looks like largely involves going there, yeah. and I really think that that's very very far in the future. Now there are alternatives, and there are other ways that we can do it. So there's the possibility of life in our own solar system. So we may find complex life on the moons of of Jupiter and Saturn. There are certainly missions planned to to go there, and if we were to to discover those. Then I think that would be that would be a huge challenge to zoologists on Earth, and and yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be done in terms of extending our our understanding of of evolution to to those cases. But but that's a you know that that that, that, that there are relatively small chance that that we'll actually find complex life uh, on those on those moons, and then really. You know, I always say that, that our best bet as zoologists to see what's going on in other worlds is if there's some alien David Attenborough somewhere who's like transmitting uh, TV shows of, of life on, on, on another planet. And, and, and that's, that's, that's our best bet, I think. Yeah. And uh, what kind of uh, uh, life 
can we think about? I mean, if we think about the moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn, can we imagine the way life might have emerged there? Well, we're fairly... So, although we have to keep an open mind because there are a lot of things that we don't understand about about chemistry of life in particular, but we tend to think that that life's going to be going to involve the sorts of chemical reactions that we know about. So it's going to take place at, at the sort of temperatures that we that we that we know about. It's going to take place in a liquid because mm. chemical reactions only really take place usefully in 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 liquids. So um, so we tend to rule out things like um, life on the surface of Titan, which is there's plenty of liquid, but it's very very cold. So chemical reactions take place very slowly. You can't rule it out completely. We tend to think that that places, that the kinds of places in our solar system where we might find life are the kinds of places that have plenty of, of liquid, preferably liquid water, um, and and these are going to be underground oceans. Uh, this is the only place where where liquid water can exist, really, in in, uh, in in our solar system apart from Earth. I mean, there's a couple other very strange places. Um, layers of of the atmosphere of Neptune and things like that, but we don't we don't really understand the the the, the physics of that yet. So we know there are under, underground oceans on on Europa and, and on Enceladus, and and if there is life there, then it will be constrained by the physical properties of of where it is. So it will be dark almost certainly. Um, They'll have to get their energy from somewhere. All, all life needs energy. You can't have life without energy. So will these organisms be getting their energy from the heat of the moon's core? Will they be getting it from tidal friction? We don't know, but, but we, can, we can think about the different mechanisms by which that, that could be happening. And, and that helps us to build up some idea of, of how these organisms might be built and, and, and what they might be doing. Let's say that we point our telescopes to some uh, exoplanet and then we detect a uh certain biosignatures, not technosignatures. That's, we're going to talk about that later. But let's say that we detect some biosignatures. Um, do you think we have a chance to figure out whether these uh, biosignatures are coming from uh, simple uh, organisms like uh, bacteria or from animals, more complex organisms? Mm. I think it's very difficult. And it's difficult partly because we don't know what chemistry to expect. If we find, as we might, uh, it's quite possible, if we find that life in, in, in our galaxy is largely based on similar chemistry to life on Earth, which is a reasonable, uh, is a reasonable um, hypothesis at least, then, then it may be possible to, to look at the contents of, of the, or the chemical composition of atmospheres and, and draw some conclusions about the level of complexity of, 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 uh, of the life on that, on that planet. It won't be easy because, um, at least initially, we'll be getting only the very coarsest information about what kinds of, of, of gases are present in, in the atmosphere. But things like, for instance, if we look at, at, at Earth, if you look at Earth from space, you see it's very complex. It's a very complex atmosphere. So there's, there are weather systems. There's clearly, um, there's clearly complex um, diversity of, of habitats on the planet. And those habitats are, are both influencing and being influenced by the life. On the planet, so so many of our mountains, you know, not all of them, but many of our mountains on Earth are made out of living organisms. They're they're, they're made out of of, um, of marine creatures and 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 the, the limestone that they've that they've deposited. So so life is actually changing the physics and the chemistry of the planet as well as being influenced by it. So there are 
I, I would say that that given enough time, given the uh, enough advances in in technology, yes, I think there are possibilities to to draw more detailed conclusions from from biosignatures. Might be much easier to detect. Uh... I mean, if there was some intelligent civilization, maybe we would be able to detect some pollutants and that would be much easier. That is possible. That is possible, although... Depends on the type of pollutants. It also depends on how long a civilization can exist with, <laughs> with pollution. Um, you know, don't forget that, that we're only looking at a snapshot in, in time in a very, very old galaxy. So, so if a... If a typical industrial civilization only lasts a few hundred years, then then we're very, very unlikely to, to spot it just by looking around at random. Yeah, you need to be very lurk. Um, so now let's talk about uh, life a little bit. Uh, in terms of um, uh, when we look at uh, animals and uh, other living organisms, I mean, they occupy niches, they have evolved. And I mean, uh, we understand that uh, living beings in our planet evolved from the last universal common ancestor through a series of uh, evolutionary steps. And in order to have um, evolution, you need uh, some uh, key factors. You need uh, self-replication, you need the blueprint, so a genome, you need inheritance, and you need the mutation and selection. Uh, what I want to ask is that how would you attempt to figure out if and how these characteristics of evolution in general um, emerge in uh, prebiotic chemistry? Well, the first point to make is that life, or the very simplest forms of life, and even prebiotic structures, which are complex enough to, to, to be the basis of, of the simplest forms of life, can't really evolve on their own. They, they can't come into existence on their own. So there must be evolution acting even before life arises. So those complex um, prebiotic structures and, and, and primitive cells or, or, or uh, accumulations of, of, of reproducing material, RNA, would, would have been on, on our planet. These things must have evolved through natural selection or they, they would have arisen by chance. But, but we essentially dis discount the idea that they could have arisen by chance. So there are evolutionary processes acting all the time and and under that understanding that step from not life to life is obviously a very very challenging yeah. question and many people are are working on it so not, i can't give you a, a any kind of definitive answer but what we do know is that it must have involved natural selection it can't just have been a fluke it can't just have been a chance that 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 two molecules came together and happened to to produce life that that, that seems to be utterly unreasonable yeah, so I mean, we can uh, run experiments in, in a computer. We can do agent, uh, software agent uh, simulations to to little experiments in the little world with the, uh, with the evolution. So I can just take a bunch of neural networks. I can put some rules. I can let it evolve and see what happens. But then the problem is that I'm the one, the programmer that is writing down these rules. So when we look at uh, the real world, uh, so do you think this? Uh, kind of rules are uh, embedded somehow in the physics and the chemistry of you know, nature. I mean, it's a kind of philosophical question, this one. There are rules, of course. Of course there are rules and there are constraints, but what's important about, about life, it's important about non-life as well, but, but it's particularly true when it comes to life, is that life is a very complex system and complex in, in a mathematical sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a system that, that even if you know all the rules 
uh, you can't actually know what's, what's going to happen. This is deterministic chaos, essentially. When you have a very complex system of many interacting subsystems, then the outcome becomes very, very difficult to predict. So knowing the rules is, is, is not really enough. And as you say, you can be the programmer and you can, and, and you can program in some, some fairly simple, simple rules and, and see what happens. But if you haven't allowed the full scope of, of physical interactions to, to, to be represented within your software, then it's quite likely you're, you're not really going to capture the, the way that, that physical objects behave in the physical universe, which can actually exploit essentially any, any possibility. So simulating these things is hard. Um, I think we can simulate, we can certainly simulate, um, very sp uh, look at trying to answer very specific questions. So for instance, you, you might um, write a simulation to, to, to ask questions like, well, would we expect sexual reproduction to evolve? Uh, does it give an advantage? Does Darwinian selection give an advantage over Lamarckian selection? And specific questions like that. But I think that I think that trying to trying to evolve life from non-life in software is very challenging, very challenging indeed. That uh, will require uh, massive uh, computational power. Uh, things we don't have right now. I'm not I sure. Mean, I'm not sure that it's computational power. I, I think it's it's just tough to represent the entire world yeah. in software. Um, certainly, if if you have a a, a a hypothesis of a proposed mechanism, you, you can test and see how, how likely that is to work. But covering all the, the different mechanisms that are possible, I think, is, is going to be very, very difficult. And of course, we, we know from thinking about, about complex chemistries on, on, other, on other planets, the atmosphere of Venus, for instance, we, we feel that there could be biochemistries that are completely different from our own. And, and, and with rules that we, we haven't really examined. Yeah. So, I mean, the agent uh, software uh, thing I was mentioning before, it's a kind of a video game. It doesn't really represent the physical and chemi chemical world. In fact, it doesn't even have any physics. Maybe a little bit of physics, uh, but uh, certainly not uh, chemistry. And I think we are even struggling with the uh, molecular uh, simulations with, when molecules become complex enough. We find hard time to simulate these things, but I hope one day we will be able to run these uh, huge, uh, complex uh, simulations and uh, figure out this thing in a virtual lab, which is easier than doing it in a, in a real lab. So the other question is, uh, do you think uh, the laws of biology are uh, fundamental laws, uh, just like physics or chemistry? Do they apply? Would they apply in uh, other planets? Would they apply in other uh, uh, situations? I'm talking about evolution. Yeah. They are, um, as long as you're careful to define the the laws of biology, as mm. it were, in, in, in the most general terms. And, and they're universal laws because they're essentially mathematical laws. So evolution is not really a biological process. It's a process that's come to our attention through biology. But evolution by natural selection is actually a, a mathematical process. And you can see that because it occurs not just in biological life forms, you can see any system that has the, these properties of, of heritability and variation and, and, and differential fitness. So some individuals perform better than, than other ones. You can, you, can, you can see evolution taking place in, in, in software. You can see it taking place in cultural ideas and, and so on. It's really just a representation of 
almost a almost an obvious fact that that the that the, uh, the individuals with properties that allow them to to reproduce themselves more will will tend to be represented more in future in future generations. Now, that's the sort of bottom line of evolution by natural selection. We understand through 150 years of of research now a lot more about the details about how how these systems work. And in particular, we understand a lot more about what happens when these individuals start interacting with each other. And new laws arise, and, and, and these, are, these are also laws that are, that are fundamentally mathematical in their nature. So things like when should two individuals cooperate, when should they compete? These are laws of game theory and, and, and so on. So, so yes, you would expect these laws to be universal just because they aren't really... They don't make any assumptions about the nature of, of biological life on Earth. I would think in terms of uh, life emerging in other places in the universe, uh, how, how can we speculate on the existence of uh, life elsewhere if uh, we don't have a clear idea of what's uh, required in order to transition from uh, prebiotic chemistry to life? Yeah, and that's, and that's a big problem. <laughs> that, that is, we, we, we don't really know. I, th- I think, though, that what's happened over recent years is that there's been if, although we haven't proven this, but, but there's sort of been a shift in, in, the, in the feeling amongst researchers that that transition from prebiotic non-life to biological life is perhaps not as difficult as we once thought it was. So lots of people are working on new ideas and, and new mechanisms. And if you just look at the breadth of proposed mechanisms for this to occur, it's quite wide. People, there's always Ideas come up like, well, maybe it could be, could be this or, may, or maybe it could be that. And I, th- I think that reflects the fact that the requirements for life, the requirements for something to be alive are quite simple. They're quite straightforward. And those requirements can be answered in many, many different ways. So perhaps it's really not that difficult for life to evolve. Of course, that's a hypothesis that we have to test. We have to find it and, and see. So we need to wait until we'll be able to create life in a lab. Or to detect it on, on, uh, yeah. on other planets, yeah. Um, so life has been in its uh, simplest form for most of uh, Earth's history. Um, Luca, as I said before, the last, common, uh, last universal common ancestor appeared around 4 billion years ago, and then uh, for like 3 billion years ago, for like 3 billion years, life was in its uh, simplest form, like monocellular organisms, bacteria, archaea. And then we had the multicellular uh, organisms appearing, and then we had the, the, the Acheron uh, period where uh, we witnessed the first uh, animals. Then we don't know if the first animals were there, but at least that's what we found. Um, after your uh, podcast with uh, Sean Carroll, someone uh, commented on Twitter that uh, the probability of the emergence of multicellularity is uh, significantly different from the probability of the emergence of uh, animals. Um, and that uh, the emergence of animals would be considered as a sort of a singularity, a very rare event. What do you make of this uh, comment? Uh, can we really estimate these uh, probabilities if we haven't been able to create, I don't know about multicellular, but I don't think we've been able to create multicellular organisms from scratch in a lab. And for sure we haven't been able to make animals from scratch in a lab. But what do you think about this thing? Well, I think we need to be, careful with our definitions. I think that multicellularity is certainly the basis of complex life on Earth, mm. and it's probably the basis of complex life everywhere, but we can't be sure of that. So one of the reasons that we think that the cell 
is essential for life is because we know that life needs to be contained physically. Mm. So life is all about using energy to, to manipulate entropy and, 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 and so on. And you, you've got to, you, to stop you from, from becoming, from something that's alive, from becoming not alive, it needs to, it needs to concentrate energy in, in a, in a, in a spatial volume. And so we tend to think that a cell is something that, that does that. There could be other ways of doing it, but even if we stick with, with this idea that the cell is, is essential for life, then people do tend to, to, to think that, that simple life is unicellular and complex life is multicellular, as we see on Earth. So we're made of millions and billions of cells and, and bacteria aren't. But we do have to be careful because, although, as you quite rightly say, life has been around for the vast majority of the time that life's been around, it's been simple and, and single cell. But that doesn't mean that it was simple in function. So we know that three billion years ago, approximately, um, we can see trace fossils on stromatolites that show that there were unicellular organisms grazing on these algal mats. So already you had that interaction, that complex interaction, I think it's a complex interaction, of one organism getting its energy from another organism. But these were single cells. So this is a, a, a single-celled um, amoeba, essentially, um, that, that, that's, that's crawling over the, over the algae and, and, and eating them. Now, is it an animal? No, it's not an animal by the definition that we use on Earth, because our definition of animals on Earth is everything that has evolved from the ancestor of the animals, which sounds circular, but it isn't. Um, I can explain why later. But, but anyway, as, but in terms of an organism that moves around to find food. Well, there certainly are single-celled organisms that move around to find mm. food. We know that. Now, does that mean that we can assume that multicellularity is the basis of complex life? I'm not sure that we can. I'm not sure that we can. I think it's very likely. Um, but as, as I always say, you know, there will be exceptions to just about everything that we think. The universe is a very, very large place, and many, many things are possible. But common solutions will still be common. I think that multicellularity is a, is a very good solution to solving a lot of, of ecological challenges and where to get your food and how to avoid being eaten and so on. So I think we will see multicellularity evolving many, many times in the universe. But we'll also see many instances of single-celled organisms evolving and, and perhaps even uh, gaining some behavioral complexity as well. And uh, so these uh, simple organisms, uh, they could be alive if, even if they didn't communicate. But it turns out that these uh, simple organisms sometimes uh, communicate, well, I guess most of the times, communicate with each other. How do you think uh, there's a communication between uh, uh, organisms from the same population emerged? How did it evolve? Well, communication is, is almost universal amongst life on Earth. So even bacteria communicate. Mm. We know that bacteria communicate. And um, so you have bacterial um, films where you have colonies of bacteria living on, on a surface and, and they're, they're using chemical communication to, to transmit information about, about um, what nutrients are, are available, what nutrients are, are lacking and so on. Um, you don't think of it as communication because people tend to think that communication has to have some sort of conscious purpose, but, but it really doesn't. Communication is just a signal that, that alters someone else's behavior to your own benefit. 
So, so bacteria communicate. That, that's not a problem. The moment that you have animals, and if we take the sort of the broadest definition of animals, which would be organisms that move to find food, um, then communication becomes much more important. Because if you're moving, then you don't necessarily know where the other organisms that, that, that you need to communicate with are. And, 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 and so communication gets extra, gets extra, extra constraints on it and extra, and extra requirements. So communication should be fairly universal. And we haven't even started to, to talk about sexual reproduction. So where there's actually a need for two individuals to come together, then, then of course, communication is utterly indispensable. Let's say that we record the signal that contains some, like, we're recording any signal. It could be a chemical signal, could be a visual signal, could be a sound signal or whatever. How can we figure out that there is meaningful information contained in this signal? And how can we quantify that? Let's say that we have, uh, we record a bird song. How can we distinguish whether there's a bird song as just music, as like someone playing a piano? Or if that, this bird song contains like, okay, this morning I woke up, I had a worm for breakfast, I'm building a nest, would you like to join and help me? How, how do we do that? That's a very difficult question. And there's actually several questions in one. Um, so first you asked whether, how do we know whether a bird song has meaning? Meaning is a difficult word. Meaning is, is a word that we understand mm. quite clearly as humans, but we have to be very, very careful when talking about animals not to to impose our own brains and brain function on on animals and and what we understand by meaning is something quite specific and and related to language um you you can extend the concept of meaning to other animals you just have to be a little bit a little bit careful of what it means to mean something does the animal need to know that they're doing this does do they need to be reflecting on the fact that the does the bird need to think now i will tell the other birds that, that I had a worm for breakfast? Um, probably not. The, the birds are probably not doing that. And certainly if you go to simpler animals like bees or, or, or crickets, then, then it seems unlikely that they've got that, that reflective, introspective element. Does that mean their signals don't mean anything? I'm just saying that, that, that when we come to talk about animal communication, we do have to be very, very careful that we're not just extending our own understanding of communication. Having said that, um, we can determine whether or not signals have information, uh, which is not quite the same as meaning, but I think for most people, I, I would, I'd say that, that they're probably very, very similar concepts. The, ways, the sort of ways that we decide whether, whether a signal has meaning or not is mostly to look at the effect it has on, on the animal that's, that's receiving the signal. So if it does change the behavior of the of the animal that hears it or, or sees it or, or so on and if that change in behavior seems to benefit the animal that made the signal then we tend to think that that's that's a signal with information in it it's done the job that the signaling animal needed if i say stay away this is my territory and you stay away then then that's been a successful signal that signal contained the information this is my territory stay away um that's if we can observe them. That's if we can study these animals. And of course, this is what we do. This is a lot of, of what zoologists do is look at the communication between animals and do experiments and, and, and observe them in the wild and so on. If you're um, not able to observe them, so perhaps you're just 
making recordings and, and you can't see the animals or perhaps you're gathering data from another planet then it becomes a little bit harder because mm. we don't really know what the behaviors are that are associated with those and there are mathematical techniques we can we can use statistical analyses to look at the signals and see is it likely they have information or not but but that's a bit more of a challenge yeah so when you think about uh, a bird song which we have the equivalent of music i guess probably if you ask uh, does it have meaning that's probably a badly posed question because does music have meaning yeah you can you can elicit uh, feelings and emotions into someone that is listening to music. otherwise why would you listen to music if it doesn't uh, have any effect on you right it would be just like you don't listen to anything why would you listen to music <laughs> you listen to music because you like it so i don't know maybe using the concept of meaning doesn't have much sense maybe every signal is a meaning unless it's a random noise right right i i think that's exactly i think you've exactly hit on hit on the problem there i think it is useful to talk about meaning in animal signals but i think that we just have to be careful that that we distinguish between meaning and intentional meaning like instructions for example that would be a different uh, just i think just meaning it doesn't doesn't mean much but if i say does it convey instructions does it convey uh, information about the world yeah i i think that that most signals can contain some information mm. otherwise they wouldn't be making them uh most signals affect the behavior of other organisms again otherwise they wouldn't have evolved uh, so so the i think meaning is a is a concept that has many layers um there is meaning in the sense of containing information there is meaning in the sense of intention and there's meaning in the sense of of how others react to a signal so i i'm not saying it's a, it's a bad word to use mm. but i think it's one that we we need to use carefully because the worst thing that we can do is to is to pretend that animals are talking like humans talk that would be that would just be a mistake they don't do that it's not fair on the animals to 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 represent them that way okay now let's talk about uh, um intelligence um we came up with the methods for quantifying uh, human intelligence so we have the iq tests which are widely used but the issue with these uh, methods is that uh, they are strongly dependent on social technological and cultural uh, context so it wouldn't be fair to compare uh, people from different uh, let's say cultural context uh, using uh, iq tests you would need to come up with specific iq tests for uh, the two of them i mean you can't just say these people are uh, uh, stupid because they cannot score well in this iq test um, because just they just live in some remote areas and they they don't have technology and so on but i guess the same thing applies for uh, uh, when we try to compare uh, to run tests to compare our intelligence with the animal intelligence so is there any any way we can uh, compare the intelligence of uh, different species uh, is there any can we come up with some fair test no <laughs> <laughs> okay no because because it doesn't it, it it's a very dubious task to compare intelligence i mean i can understand why someone might want to compare intelligence in humans um for i don't know hiring people for a job perhaps mm. or something like that but but what does it mean to compare intelligence between species why why would we want to know this what is this what is this telling us if you say a a a 
a crow is more intelligent than a raven or, or a blue tit is more intelligent than, than a snail. I'm not sure what that actually means. Um, now, we know that all animals have intelligence because intelligence is a very, very fundamental part of, of, of life, a very, certainly a very fundamental part of animal life because animals are in the business of going out and solving problems and finding food and, and finding food is, is a problem and you need to have sensory, have sensory systems to see what, to detect where the food is. You then need to act on that. You need to avoid becoming someone else's food. So, so life is full of problems and intelligence essentially, if you want a one-line definition, it's the way that you solve these, the problems of life. Now, it turns out there are many different ways of solving life's problems. You can um, solve problems, for instance, by having a, a fantastic memory. You might remember everything that, that, that you see. Uh, you might have a kind of intelligence that allows you to interpret your senses very accurately, like a, a dolphin or a bat using, using sonar. Um, these are clearly very, very different tools, very different tasks, and it doesn't make sense why one would want to compare them. Well, the other thing to, to remember is that intelligence comes at a big cost. So it's a mistake to think that all animals are, if you like, striving to be more intelligent, evolving to become more intelligent. That's, that's definitely not the case. Uh, intelligence, we pay a big, a big price for intelligence in, in the size of our brains and, and, and how it constrains us, it limits us. And, and, and you know, we have to wear a helmet when we go cycling because we're actually quite fragile. You know, if, if anything happens to our brains, we're in, we're in big trouble. So, so this kind of intelligence is, is not something that, that, the kind of intelligence that we have is not something that all animals would benefit from. And so we don't see it evolving in, in all species, but they, they evolve intelligence to solve the kinds of problems that they have. I think uh, the, you probably know better than me, but uh, we often hear about uh, certain articles or certain news pieces where they compare uh, the intelligence of uh, dolphins with the intelligence of humans. They say dolphins are very intelligent. And I think when they write down these news pieces, they, they don't think in terms of problem solving, as you defined it. But they try to use this uh, intelligence quantification as a, a way of saying they are closer to us than, than a dog, for example. Yeah, but of course, a dolphin that lives in the sea... Um isn't really that close to us because the problems that they are solving are largely very different kinds of problems from the, the kinds of problems that we solve. Now, there is an exception to that. And um, one of the most important drivers of human intelligence, so intelligence, the way that we understand it and the way that we are and the fact that we have language and so on, it, one of the most important drivers of that evolutionarily has been our social structure. Mm. So our ancestors lived in a very complex social, social environment and they needed large brains to deal with the fact that they had loads of friends and they weren't sure who they were getting on with and who would have been fighting with whom and you need a big brain to figure all that, that stuff out. And there are animals that, that, that have similar social structures, dolphins being a, a, a good example. So one of the reasons that dolphins are as intelligent as they are, and we do think they are intelligent, is to handle this complex social uh, environment in which they live. So there are things that are, that are the same, and clearly there are things that are very, very different, particularly the way they perceive the environment. So it, it, it doesn't really make sense to say 
a dolphin is as intelligent as a three-year-old child or something like that. That yeah, doesn't. They, often say, that, they say things yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. but but that doesn't really have have much significance. What's much more interesting is to say these aspects of dolphin intelligence. Um, we can see parallels in 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 human intelligence, and and, and these aspects we, we we don't see parallels. And in fact, you could go and uh, pick uh, any. You can pick any animal task and compare uh, and see how humans solve that right. task. Let's say, I don't know, you're in the wild and the task is you need to catch some rabbit. Who's going to perform better, a dog or a human? So, I mean, in that case, <laughs> the but, human would be stupid, right? So, so one of the things that... Without tools, without guns. Except that one of the things that we see is that what humans seem to be particularly good at is very general intelligence. So, so we're good at, at, at solving general problems. And that makes us very flexible. Yeah. So if you put a human in the jungle and, and, and told them to catch a rabbit, they might not do as well as a, as a tiger, but they would certainly do better than um, another animal that hadn't evolved in the, in the jungle, so kangaroo. Mm. Um, because when you are a generalist, when you are good at general tasks, you have the advantage of, of having a wide range of things that you can do, but you tend to be less good at specific things. So a specialist will always be better at their specialist task than a generalist, but the generalist has the advantage they can, they can do many things. So humans are, are archetypal generalists. We, can, we, can, we could catch a rabbit in, in the jungle, but just not as well as a tiger can. Yeah. Um, how do animals uh, solve problems? Do you think uh, they have a model of the world? They predict the future? They act out of instinct? Uh, how does it work? And do we have any way to investigate that? Uh, does that involve invasive uh, mechanisms like a neural link and things like that? Or we can do that without, uh, without making these animals suffer? Well, again, you know, there are many animals and they solve many different problems. And they're all different. And some of them require um, cognitive abilities of a certain sort and, and some involve cognitive abilities of, of another sort. We tend to think that um, most animals probably don't have complex models of the world in their mind. There are experiments that, that, that people do, non-invasive experiments, um, but nonetheless ones where you, you know, constrain an animal to, to do something, run around a maze or something like that. So, so we can investigate that to an extent. Our, our best clue, though, to whether animals are likely to have this, this sort of reflective internal representation of things is really to look at their, at their relationship to the environment. So when you have chimpanzees, for instance, or dolphins, for that matter, or humans who live in these complex societies, at least you can hypothesize that if I need to understand you and everyone else, and I need to understand what you are thinking, because I need to predict how you're going to behave, then that means I probably have some understanding of me and, and what I'm thinking. So we tend to think that those animals with more complex brains that live in more complex social, uh, social groups quite possibly have this kind of reflective sense of their selves and sense of, and sense of others as being individual others. And, and you can test that. I mean, there are plenty of experiments that, that can be done. Sort of classic experiment is you is you show, you, you show an animal some, some objects, some uh, boxes, for instance, one of which has, has food in it, and, uh, and a second animal is observing this, and then you take the second animal away, 
you switch the food to another box and bring and bring the animal back. Now, the first animal who's observing this will expect the animal to go to which box? If they're thinking uh, for themselves where the food is, they'll expect it to go to the box where the food actually is. But if they understand that that second animal hasn't seen the food being switched, they would expect that second animal to go to the first box. And you can track eye movement and, and things like that and, and, and see mm. what, what's going on. So, so you, can, you can probe how, uh, how animals think about other animals using clever uh, experiments like that. And I think I was uh, watching a video about self-awareness where they put a mark in the head of an elephant. Is that a good test for self-awareness? And so it's a there is controversial a test. Front. Yes, go on, explain it. No, you can explain it. Well, the, the idea is if you, if, uh, will an animal recognize an image in a mirror as being itself mm. rather than being either just an image or another animal? Uh, and and it's been suggested that if you if you place a mark on on the head of an animal where it, where it can't see it, and then show them the animal a mirror, then you might expect this animal to you know, touch the mark or to Check investigate it. the mark and see and, and investigate it if it thinks if it understands that the reflection in the mirror is is itself. It's a it's a test that's been quite widely used, but almost always controversial. Hmm. Um, so it it it's not a simple it's not a simple test to 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 interpret. Uh, there are lots of confounding factors that, that that you could use to explain. And of course, there are animals that are not quite as visually uh, as visually focused, and and so they may not care that much if they just see a, a picture. So just the fact that, that an animal doesn't respond to the mark probably doesn't say very much. If, if an animal does respond to the mark and and you've really controlled for all the other, other all the other possible explanations, it, it, it's probably a reasonable test. Mm. And uh, I was also reading that uh, some that dolphins have names. Is that uh, is that true? Yes, that's that's true. That's something that that, that we're fairly confident about. So um, dolphins, so dolphins, of course, are very very vocal animals they're very acoustic it's very difficult to see very much underwater so most of their communication is through sound um and they use these these particular sounds which you know you can call names we call them signature whistles but but they're essentially names a specific sound for a specific animal and each animal has their own um, has their own whistle which sounds slightly different from from every other whistle so that's also another nice little piece of circumstantial evidence that the animals understand individual identity. They understand this is me and that is you. It's, it's not conclusive, um, but it's, it's a, a good starting place for, for, for doing some, uh, some experiments. So just to have an idea, how does it work? Like you have some a dolphin that uh, comes and meets another dolphin and he's going to say, hi, I'm, <laughs> this is my name. And uh, how does it work? Not usually, not usually. So um, in fact, that, that, there's not an awful lot of cases where we can really investigate this carefully because mm. in the wild, of course, it's extremely, extremely difficult to follow the dolphins. And it's very difficult to know. In fact, it's very difficult to know which animal is making a sound. Because unlike humans, they don't make, they don't make sound by expelling air because, of course, they're holding their breath. Um, so you don't see bubbles coming out when they're, when they're making sound. They recirculate their air as they, as they use it to, to generate sound. Mm. So... It's very hard to answer that question, but we do know that dolphins use their names in 
um, contexts where they've um, where they become separated, for instance, uh, mothers and calves use the names to 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 maintain uh, to maintain contact between them. Um, we also know that dolphins use their 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 signature whistles when they themselves become isolated, so um, as if they're calling for help. Mm. Um, so so we are we're confident that that these signature whistles play the a role of uh, in, in the same way that a, a similar way to to the way that names do, but but the full use of them, no, we're we're, we're still quite a long way from understanding that. And uh, can a dolphin di- distinguish between two different dolphins just by looking at them without any sounds, or um, the sound is required? The, the that's something I don't think anyone has ever really tested. It's very difficult to test. Um, to test visual recognition in in mm. in dolphins um certainly they can by sound uh, i'm not sure whether whether they'd be able to by sight probably not because the visibility in water is very low so even in in really really pristine clear waters we're talking about 15 meters 20 meters maybe maximum mm. um so so Although dolphins do have good eyesight, because otherwise they'd be completely blind, yeah. uh, you know that a lot of their communication is 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 going to be through sound. Okay. And the other thing I want to ask is about the wolves, because you, you've done a lot of work with wolves. And how do they hunt? Like, do they plan the hunting season in advance? And uh, when they hunt, how do they delegate? Is there anyone delegating the work, like the the the, the alpha? dog how do you call it no no, uh, no. unfortunately how does it not. work so it's one of the sort of misconceptions is that that a lot of animals plan their hunting now wolves cooperate so they operate they they, they hunt cooperatively mm. but not collaboratively so they don't actually plan their hunt there are very very few animals that actually really plan hunting together we think the orca do although we don't have very good evidence for it, but there's some, there's some anecdotal and circumstantial evidence that orca might actually plan hunting. So when you see these pods of orca, uh, I don't know if you've seen the videos of them, them swimming together and creating a giant wave that comes and, uh, to, and washes oh, yeah, a seal yeah, off, yeah, a, yeah. off an ice floe. Um, so they may well um, coordinate that. Um, there's some evidence that chimpanzees coordinate hunting. Um, so one of them will stand in ambush and then the others will will chase a, a monkey to, towards the ambush, but it's not a common it's not a common thing. So what usually happens is that each individual wolf is assessing the situation and then behaving in a way that will optimize the, the success of a hunt. Yes, but they're not giving instructions to each other. Uh, we're pretty sure they, that, that wolves don't give any instructions, don't coordinate their hunting. There's been speculation that some other species um, of, of, of pack hunters do, but we haven't really got any, any conclusive evidence for that. Uh, the, and it works, though. It works. It works yeah. very well, not all the same. So the wolves don't have any... Like, how do you call the, the, the boss of the pack, the alpha? How do you call well, it? There isn't really... So Is there any... There's not really a boss leader. of the pack. No, no. Packs are... So, Wolf packs are generally extended family groups. So you have a mating pair, a male and a female. You have their, uh, their juvenile offspring and, and, and some, uh, some older females. Oftentimes, as with many animals, the males, once they become mature, they, they disperse. Uh, 
But it does depend very, with wolves it's slightly different. So it depends on, on precisely the, the environment where they live. But by and large, wolves live in packs because they need to, because you need to be in a large group because you can't hunt bison with just two animals. So there is an advantage to, to living in a large pack. So, so quite often you, you get the, the, the offspring don't disperse um, if there are no opportunities for them. And quite often packs take in wolves from other packs that, are, that have dispersed from other packs and, and just because there's this advantage to being many animals. And so if you have six or seven animals in a pack, then hunting can be, can, can be more effective. But no, the, the, the breeding male isn't the boss really in any sense except, um, except for, for uh, monopolizing, the, monopolizing the mating. Uh, okay. So is that uh, the presence of a leader, is that, is that something you see in some other species like apes, for example, uh, where it is like, it's clear that he's the boss and is controlling things around? Well, again, the boss is what we think of as the boss, like the dominant gorilla yeah. or the dominant wolf or something like that. Uh, they're mainly the boss when it comes to mating. Okay. So, so if you have a society where... Um, Everyone is essentially equal. Everyone mm. can more or less do whatever they like, as, for instance, with gorillas. Um, then how does one gorilla get an advantage over another gorilla? Remember, evolution works through differential fitness. Those animals that are more successful will have more, more genes represented in the next generation. So in a situation like that, we tend to see um, one male fighting to become dominant and and that's indeed what you see with with gorillas but that's by no means the case with 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 all animals if you have um if you have animals that 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 have that can defend a a, a, a territory or that can that can um that can monopolize their resource by by virtue of being there maybe they have a a, a berry bush and, and this is their bush right then then you tend to just just to get a, a small family group and, and and they live there and and and, and eat the berries without having this sort of big dominance leadership um, phenomenon. It's not, it's not universal by any means. Mm. Yeah, so the other one I want to ask is that, um, what's a language and uh, what techniques do we have to check whether uh, animals have a language or they don't have language? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a difficult question. It really is. And, 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 yeah, you can be walking down, walking through the woods and listening to the birds singing. And how do you know they're not talking about you? They could be. Um, it's, it's not that easy to tell. You're quite right, though. First, you've got to define what a language is. Now, that's something that's also very controversial. Many people have come up with different definitions and very few people agree on what the definition of a language is. I, I have my definition of language, which I think is a good one. Um, and I think language is the ability to communicate an unlimited number of concepts. Now, all animals communicate, we know that, um, but what, the information they communicate is fairly limited. So a few concepts, sometimes only, this is my territory. That might be the only concept. Sometimes it's um, warning about different kinds of predators. There may be different alarm calls for different kinds of predators, but really we're talking about very, very few concepts that they talk about. Humans are the only ones that really can communicate an unlimited number of concepts. No end to, to what humans can say. Also, we think. But how do we know? 
how do we know that, that that is the case? Some birds, they sing the same thing over and over again, so we know that that's not a language. But what about dolphins? And what about birds that sing different things all the time? And, and, and are, there any other, are there any other ways of, of looking at that? It's hard. One thing that we tend to do is we look at the statistical properties of this communication because the kind of communication that could carry an unlimited number of, uh, an unlimited amount of information, um, it's quite constrained statistically. So you might think that it would be very complex, right? If you've got to say a lot of different things, you need some, you need a very complex communication system. If you've got a simple communication, you'll say tweet, tweet. You can't say very much apart from tweet. So complexity's clearly got something to do with it. However, complexity can't be the end of the story because, as I mentioned before, intelligence and complexity both come with a cost. You need a large brain. If you had a really, really complex language, you would need a really, really, really large brain. That doesn't mean that a language won't be extremely complex, but it does mean that if a language evolved through natural selection, from simple to complex, gaining more complexity and more ability to express ideas, then it's operating under the constraints of natural selection. There are trade-offs. Animal that is, that is communicating is paying a price for the more complex communication. And that means, or so we hypothesize, that means that we could expect language to be well-balanced between simplicity and complexity. You wouldn't expect an absurdly complex language to evolve naturally. We could design one, and we, and we do. And we see that commu computer communication, for instance, is horrifically complex, but, but that's been designed. It's not evolved. So... So we think that language should be balanced between simplicity and complexity. And when we look at human language, that's exactly what we find. We find the remarkable balance, exactly like poised precisely between as complex as it could be and as simple as it could be, which is in itself a rather remarkable finding. So, but that does support this, this idea that, that, that the constraints on language evolution would lead to this effect. So we can take these, this statistical measure and go and look at animals. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, what we find is there are quite a few animals that also communicate with this, very, with this uh, excellent balance between simplicity and complexity. Animals that we're pretty sure don't have a language. <laughs> they, they don't have a great deal to say, but they still do this. But that just backs up the idea that these, these trade-offs, these evolutionary constraints are really operating. So you could say that this kind of balance is, if you like, a first filter. Any communication that doesn't conform to that is probably quite unlikely to be a, a natural language. Um, but we've still got a long way to go to answer the question of how would we know for sure whether a, whether a particular animal, animal signal really is a language or not. And in the end, it comes down to the sort of the behavioral um, measures that, that I mentioned before. You just have to look at the animals and see what they do when they communicate to see if we really think that they're, that they're talking mm. about lots of stuff. Now, the statistical methods, uh, were you referring to the Ziff's law? Yeah, so... so yeah, well, what's the Ziff's law and uh, how does that, uh, how can we use it, uh, how does the Ziff's law compare 
when we apply to the let's say English language, how does it look like? And then how does it look like when we apply it to I don't know some animal language uh, communication, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Well, Zipp's law was uh, is it's a phenomenon that's been that's been noted that was noticed decades ago. Um, and if you look in English, the, the most common word the um, is twice as common as the second most common word, of, and. Of, and, which and one a, yeah. Yeah. And it's three times as common as the third most common, and four times as common as the fourth most common, mm. and so on. And that, that goes down to about word number 10,000 or so. Remarkable, remarkable coincidence. There's really no, there's no obvious reason why that should be the case. What's even more remarkable is that it's not just true for English, it's true for every language. Every human language follows this peculiar rule of word of word frequency. And and that's called Zipp's law. However, when you you can rephrase Zipp's law mathematically slightly and show that what it represents is a is a balance between complexity and simplicity. Because if a language were really simple, then you would have one word that was extremely common. Um, so tweet, for instance, and all you would hear when you listen to a bird was tweet, 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 tweet. So that was one word that has all of the, all of the, uh, uh, it's completely the, 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 the most common word that you hear by a very long way. And if you have a really complex language, that's one where every word is equally likely. Now, if in a, in a system where every word is equally likely, essentially what you're saying is you just don't know what word will come next. It's, it's random, in fact. If every word is, is equally likely, then, then this communication stream is a stream of random symbols, which is very complex, very difficult to understand what a stream of random symbols means. And then right in the middle between every word having the same frequency and one word being uh, universal and, and no others being used, right in the middle sits this power law relationship of, of, of as, as I said, so it's the, the, uh, the second word being half as common as the, as, as the first and so on. And, and, that, and that is what we see in, in quite a few animals. Not all. So most birds, so most songbirds are way over on the, on the simpler side. Um, they have a, 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 much, a, much, um, a, a much lower entropy, in fact. Uh, it's not common to find animal communication that's much more complex, but there are a few. So this uh, Zipf's law would be a necessary but not sufficient uh, sufficient condition to say that's a language. Uh, let me say that it's a it's a candidate for being necessary but not candidate. sufficient. Um, I, it's still open to the possibility that that someone could come and show how mm. a, a different a different um, law might apply and, and might evolve. But certainly at the moment, it's a it's a nice candidate that we're that that we like to use. Before you mentioned the complexity, and I think you wrote a paper where uh, you, I think you can mathematically show that there is a relationship between uh, Shannon entropy and uh, Ziff's law. What's Shannon entropy? Well, Shannon entropy is, is um, what I was mentioning before, how random a signal is. Now, we know that a random signal, it can contain the most information. It sounds paradoxical. We don't tend to think that random things have much information in them. But they really do, because what it means is that, well, if you think about having a text file or something like that and use a compression software and it compresses it down as small as it can be, and one of the ways it does that is by removing 
uh, redundancy and, and, and creating a file that's, that appears random, but actually has the, the, the densest information yeah. in it that, that's possible. So if you can't predict what symbol's going to come next, um, it could be anything. So there could be any, any number, any amount of information in there. So that, that very high entropy, and, and entropy is essentially, um, information entropy is a measure of our ability to predict what's going to come next. If we can't predict what's going to come next, we say it has a high information entropy, high Shannon entropy, um, could contain a lot of information. I'm not saying that it does, might actually be random, but in theory, it could contain a lot of information. Contrast to the uh, low information entropy, a low Shannon entropy, which is where I know exactly what's going to come next. It's going to be tweet because it's always mm. tweet. Now, language has uh, characteristics like um, language has a syntax and there is also a grammar. Uh, what uh, tools do we have to detect whether there is a syntax and a grammar? Uh, mm. Given any, any signal can be, I don't know, from birds, from any other animal. Well, we, we think that, that grammar is important for language because we see how, how essential it is in human language. And if, the, if our definition of language is that we need to be able to convey an unlimited number of concepts, there has to be some way to do that with a finite vocabulary, and that's grammar. We, we combine our words in different ways, and, and they mean different things. So that, that's all right for human language. We understand that really intuitively. What about animals? Well, um, Animals don't seem to have a formal grammar in the sense that we do. Now, formal grammar is a, is a concept in computational linguistics, and, and, it, and it relates to how you constrain what symbols can come after and, 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 and after other symbols and so on. And it's always been thought that animals have a very, very simple kind of formal grammar. But it's a grammar nonetheless. Hmm. So. So even if, um, if you take a, a bird, for instance, and maybe there are, it can make three or four different sounds, three or four different notes, mostly you'll find that they don't just combine those notes randomly. If they did combine the notes randomly, they would have this very high information entropy. But rather than that, they use a set of rules. So if they have an, uh, say they have an A, B, C, D notes, then maybe the B is more likely to come after an A than, than to come after a, a C. Now, that's, that's a rule. That's a constraint. That's a form of syntax. It's a very simple form of syntax, and you can show that it's not a kind of syntax that could lead to an unlimited language. And that's what, what Noam Chomsky showed in the, in the 50s. But nonetheless, it's a way of combining symbols in a non-random way that gives a more intelligible meaning. And it's quite possible, although we can't prove it, and we don't know, but it's quite possible that our own language also began with some constraints on how, on, on what kinds of symbols, what kinds of sounds follow other ones, um, and a very rudimentary grammar, a very rudimentary syntax, which then developed into, into the complexity that we have at the moment. So you can certainly look at animals and say, do they do they combine their sounds randomly or, or, mm. or do they have a system? And the answer is almost always they have a system. Then the next step is to say, well, do they have this more complex grammar, more than just combining them according to what the, which sound comes after which sound? And there have been a number of, of people who've tried to look for this 
or this more complex grammar in, in various different species, in birds mostly, um, oftentimes claiming they found it. Other people claim they haven't. Um, it appears to be something that's not very common in the animal world. We can say that much. I was thinking about uh, music. Music has rules. Uh, you can't just play random stuff. You need to follow a certain rule. There must be... I don't remember what's the name of that thing. It's a harmonic... Uh, but, the, and... but the other thing about, about music is that it's not just the frequency relationships, and there are. You know, yeah. There are chord progressions and, 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 and things like that, that that make the sound the music sound nice. But you're going to feel that there is something wrong in that song. Right. You know that exactly. there is something wrong. Exactly. Uh, you can have a discordant chord progression yeah. or something. But the other thing about music is that it has a complex structure in time. So you have themes that recur and themes that yeah. recur with variation. So Mozart was particularly good at that. You know, all these variations on, and you'd have, you'd have a little theme and then it would recur, but slightly different and then and change it. And, and it's that progression in time that's very characteristic of, of language. And in particular, the, the ability to sort of embed one theme within another theme, that's something that animals don't seem to do very much. Um, there are some, you know, humpback whales seem to have quite a complex song um, that seems to involve some element of, of embedding, embedding themes within, within other motifs and so on. But, but it, it's, it's not very common in animals. Now, what do you think about uh, the detecting signals? What do you think about the SETI program? Do you think it's a good program? Uh, would you do things uh, differently? What do you think? I think it's important. I think we, we do need to, to be looking at the universe. We do need to be looking to see whether, whether there are signs of, of other technological civilizations in the galaxy. It's obviously very challenging. And I think people don't realize just how challenging it is. Um, the sky is a big place. <laughs> You know, you take a radio telescope and you point at one tiny little area in the sky. It takes a long time to cover the, 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 whole, the whole sky. And, and it's true that at the moment there are, new, um, there are new technologies coming on board and new telescope arrays that can scan the sky much more than, than has been done previously. But up until now, what's really been done is people have pointed their telescopes at a likely candidate, whatever likely candidate means, mm. um, and then listened and then listened uh, for, for signals that might indicate some kind of communication. But I think it's fair to say that we haven't really scratched the surface of the possibilities of, of, of signals from, from other civilizations. Having said that, can't, can't get away from the fact that we haven't found anything, and you know one has to draw conclusions from that as well. And, and it may be that technological civilizations are either very, very rare, or, or just not there, which is also possible. So let's say that we detect some signal from using this uh, SETI program or whatever program. We might detect two types of signals. Uh, one case, and you spoke about this, I think it was in your book or in some interviews, uh, we can have a case in which uh, aliens uh, on purpose, some uh, highly civilized uh, alien beings, uh, try to communicate with us on purpose. But then we can have the case of uh, us picking up some alien communication. Maybe they have their version of uh, alien Netflix or alien uh, satellite communication system and we manage to pick it up. What's going to be the difference in the two cases in terms of our ability to decode 
what they're trying to say, what they're trying to communicate. Well, I think that in both cases, it will be quite clear that this is a technological signal. I think that technological signals should be um, very unnatural looking um, because they, they are designed, of course, to, to maximize efficiency and to, and to maximize the, the, the amount of information that can be put in with a certain amount of energy. What that means, though, is if you were to look at Netflix from another planet, what you would see is essentially random, a random stream of data, be precisely for what the reason we were talking about before. You take a file and you compress it yeah. and, and it, it becomes random, maximal entropy. So the efficient way to send, send, um, send signals is, is, is compressed and, and, and is random, which is unusual, right? If you saw a random... Uh, random signals, then you would think, well, you know, this could be a natural process, but like but noise. Seems... Well, but it would probably have different statistical properties to yeah. to to noise. Although there are different kinds of noise, um, but they're usually not actually fully uh, fully random. So I think we we would be able to to detect that. And there are other things that we could detect. For for instance, you'd expect the energy to be focused in a very small bandwidth because again, that's that's efficiency. Of course, here I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about radio communication. Um, there, are other, there are other forms of communication that, that, that another civilization might be using, but, but some kind of electromagnetic waves is probably, probably what, what travels well through space anyway. However, if they intend us to receive this message and want us to understand it, then you could expect it to have properties that just stand out and scream at you and say, this is not natural. This is information, um, and it's long been suggested. And, and Carl Sagan wrote about this wonderfully in his in his uh, in his novel Contact um, that a sequence of prime numbers is a great way to do that because that doesn't occur in nature. There's no natural process that can produce a sequence of of prime numbers. So if they were to send a signal which was clearly a sequence of prime numbers, then then you would know this is something we need to stop and pay attention to and try to decode. And hopefully, if they've done it on purpose, they would make it easy for us to decode. And that would be easy because you just send beeps. Right. Yeah. 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 Two beeps, three yeah. beeps, five beeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what has been the most successful uh, attempt uh, um, in uh, animal-to-human communication? Well, there's two ways of answering that. In general, on a broadest scale, the most successful has been domestication of dogs. Because who of us doesn't have a dog at home that we communicate with, right? <laughs> you know? uh, and millions, yeah. billions of people communicating with their dogs. So, so in the broadest sense, we've managed to take an animal that, that admittedly was fairly like us in the sense of lived in family groups and very vocal and intelligent and, and domesticated this animal so that we could take them into our homes and, and communicate with them as a member of our family or a member of their pack. So, so in that sense, that's been unbelievably successful. And dogs, of course, have evolved from wolves. Wolves, if you take a wolf, and, and there are many experiments like this, if you take a wolf cub and a dog puppy and you raise them in a human home, uh, you'll see that the, human, that the dog becomes accustomed to, to living with humans and, and the wolf doesn't. So there are, there are genuine genetic differences that have, that have arisen through domestication. So. The dog has been, has been domesticated to get on well with people. So undoubtedly, that's the, that, that's, 
the, the first answer to your question. I don't think it was the answer you were looking for there. You were thinking of a specific case of, of complex communication between humans and Before that, um, how about the mixes between uh, wolves and dogs? How do they... Can you domesticate them? Uh, it's very difficult. Wolf-dog mixes are, 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 don't make good pets. I but wouldn't advise it to any of the listeners. Okay, so you wouldn't keep them at home, but you maybe you can use them for hunting or uh, herding uh, It's very, very, very difficult. So one of the main things that you see with um, wolves that are raised in human homes is that they don't attend to cues from humans very well. So a dog, you know, will be following your eyes, mm. following your pointing, listening to what you're saying, and, and so it's very responsive to, to, to what humans are saying. Wolves don't do that. They don't look at you in the eyes. Right, okay. and, they don't, and they don't follow your finger and, and so on. So, so it's very difficult to work with, um, with wolves, and, and wolf-dog mixes are difficult. Yes, they, they, they really don't make, they don't make good pets. I don't, I don't advise it. I don't advise uh, wolf-dog mixes for, mm. for, to, be, to be a good pet. Yeah, yeah so we anyway, were saying... Yes, we were saying that the real case of, of complex human-animal communication was the famous case of Alex the parrot. So this was an African grey parrot um, that was trained to speak English in a sense that he actually understood. He could understand that the questions that were being asked, he could respond appropriately, give appropriate answers to questions. And a lot of people were skeptical, but the, the, the experiments were, were, were so, so convincing um, and very cleverly designed as well. So it was clear that he wasn't just learning to, to memorize things and responding by rote, which is what parrots often do. Mm. Um, but he was trained to to answer relatively abstract questions. Um, so, for instance, um, you would show two objects and 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 say, you know, what's different about them? And he might say the color, which is a very complex um, question to answer. You know, you could you could show an animal. You could, it's easy to train an animal. Show them two objects and say which one is blue. Mm. That's easy. You can get, a rat will do that and a goldfish will do that. But to say, have two, two objects that are perhaps different shapes or, and, or different colors and then say, what's different about them? And for the animal to respond appropriately, shape or color, um, that's much, much, much more complex. So some really interesting experiments. And, and um, Irene Pepperberg, who, who ran this, this program, has written a couple of really nice books about it. So you can, you can read all about it. But it's clear that Alex the parrot had the ability to understand some level of human language. And that in itself is extremely interesting because as far as we know, African grey parrots don't use language. They don't use language in the wild. We've got no reason to, to believe that, that they do. We don't know a great deal about their communication, but I mean, I've studied it a bit and, and, and done some research in, in captivity and, and they don't appear to have a language per se. So why was he capable of learning a language? But this is something that's quite commonly found in, in, in nature and in evolution, which is that animals evolve traits, they evolve abilities to solve particular problems, and they, those traits give them extra abilities that perhaps weren't the subject of, of selection, but then can be acted on later and, and used as the basis of developing new abilities. So it seems quite likely that, that 
some parrots, possibly some other animals as well, possibly, possibly chimpanzees, um, have some linguistic ability that they don't use in the wild, that, that, mm. that, that, that they, they don't use in their everyday lives. But they've got the, the brain structures that are necessary to understand language and, and, and with intensive training. I mean, it took many years for, for Alex to, to learn this, but, but with appropriate training, then, then it's possible for them to, to pick up these abilities. And was this ability superior to the one that the apes show? Yes, yes, yes. So, so apes can communicate with sign language, I guess. Yeah, there have been some studies of apes with, 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 with sign language. And it's very difficult to, it, it's very difficult to assess those, those abilities um, without having the kind of, um, the kind of rigorous questioning that, that was possible with Alex, where, where you, you gave so many options and, and it was clear that it wasn't a, mm-hmm. uh, there weren't any cues that were allowing them to, to, to choose one answer over the other. So I think that that remains still the best, the best example that we have of complex language, as it were, language for, for real in, in non-human animals. Yeah, and uh, I've, I was reading some papers and I saw some videos about, uh, well, I checked your papers on uh, um, rock hyraxes, and then I saw some videos on uh, pra- prairie dogs. Seems that they have a language and they can recognize, I don't know, people with the blue or green shirt. They can recognize uh, whether there is a bird and they say words about that. How much more do you think we can understand about uh, the way these uh, animals uh, communicate? How much are we missing there and how can we find out more? And you, or, or maybe you think we've already explored all the communication that uh, these uh, animals have. No, no, there's, there's this specific two ones like prairie dogs or hyraxes, rock hyraxes. There's always more, there's always more that that we need to learn, of course. And, and prairie dogs are, are, are fascinating, but the question is, if you're going to call it a language, is it unlimited in its, in its capability? Now, it's clear that in the wild prairie dogs don't need to communicate an unlimited number of concepts. So it may be helpful for them to distinguish between different types of predators. It may be helpful for them to distinguish between different colors. Um, but it's unlikely that their needs go much beyond that. Um, that's not to say that, that they don't. Um, but we don't, from what we understand about, about their behavior and about, and about the way their societies work, that it probably, it probably doesn't. Um, so i, I would I would be reluctant to call it a language. I would say it's a very rich form of of communication, and it's probably richer than than most of the other animals that that we've studied. Of course, if we were to look at prairie dog communication and to see that they are using this communication in a complex social way, so in, I mean, they do live in in um, large communities, not necessarily complex social groups, but mm. large communities. And if we found that, that they were using that complex communication in a social context, that might imply that there was more to it than, than that. But, you know, there are a number of animals that, that have different sounds for different predators and, and, and so on, but it's still just a limited number of concepts. So the one I was referring to are uh, alarm signals, but do they have any, anything they tell each other like good morning um i've got some food um would you like to share some food with me things like that i don't know or can you help me build a dig a little bit more do they have uh, instructions can they send each other instructions not that we know of no Mm. so there's no there's no animals that we know of that send each other instructions no um now as i said 
it's possible that when it comes to cooperative hunters, of which there aren't many, as I, as I mentioned, um, perhaps orca, orca may well send each other instructions on how to catch the seal, how to the strat, what strategy is going to be used. That's possible. We haven't found that yet, but I certainly don't exclude it. Um, beyond that, though, um, beyond that, we don't know of any of any language-based uh, instructions that animals give each other. How about when they they want to say, okay, this is my territory? Do they just scare the other animal and they say, just go away? But is that an instruction? Well, there are different there are different ways of saying this is my territory. Um, so one way is to if you're a bird, for instance, to sing, and oftentimes to sing as complex a song as you can. So when you sing a very complex song, um, then again, we were saying there's this trade-off of complexity and brain size, and what you're also saying is, I'm, I'm a very fit bird. I've got a good brain, so obviously I've managed to get lots of food, mm. um, and, and so I'm, I'm not someone who, who, who should be messed with. So, so we do see that, that sometimes, oftentimes, territory displays are based on complexity. The more complex my song, the, the, the stronger a, a, a male I am. I mean, we see that in hyraxes as well, for instance. Um, another thing that, that you see, though, is using individual signatures to, to create territory, um, ter- territorial signals. So, for instance, you might have birds in a particular area that recognize each other's song, mm. and then they don't mind too much when they hear each other's song, right? Because they're neighbors. They're always going to be hearing each other's song. Well, then when another bird comes in from outside of the neighborhood, they recognize immediately that's not, that's not my neighbor. So now I need to get really angry. Um, so there's quite a lot of information in territorial, in territorial songs, territorial displays, nonetheless. Um, but it's still, the message is still, this is me. I'm here. You know, come mate with me if you're a female or get out if you're a male. You could teach an ape to... Give instructions, but that's cheating, right? We are putting we are putting our information to the system, so we are cheating in a sense. So animals are very good at learning. Um, mm. All animals are good at learning. You can teach almost any animal, almost anything that's physically possible for its anatomy. But um, animals are good at learning. That's what animals are. That's what animals do. So you can teach animals to build things, accomplish tasks, and so on. You can, in some cases teach animals to teach other animals to, to do things. So there is a sense of giving instructions there. Um, there are some experiments with, with dolphins and some experiments with, with chimps and other primates that show that if an animal has been trained on a task, they can convey those instructions to, to, uh, to another animal. Um, but it's, it's fairly limited, fairly limited abilities there. But it's a trick. And that's why I wanted to ask you, what's the difference in behavior uh, when you have animals in a controlled environment uh, compared to animals living in the wild? Like, let's say you can take a mouse, for example. You put a mouse in a lab, in a maze, and then compared to when you want to observe, observe a, a mouse in, a, in the wild, like a wild yeah. one. Yeah, that's a problem, isn't it? Because Scientists love to reduce things to the simplest case and, and con- control for everything. Yeah. So you've got everything under control, then you know the response you're seeing is just the response to your, to your stimulus. That's the way that people like to do science. Um, of, of course, when it comes to behavior, behavior doesn't evolve in that context. Behavior doesn't evolve in a lab. Behavior evolves in the wild. So it's not immediately clear. And, and of course, 
back you know, 50 years ago, that's the only way that people did, um, 70 years ago, the only way that people did animal behavior experiments was, was in a lab with the maize and white coats and mm. everything. Um, and it's not clear always what that tells you about the animal and what the behavior is for, because it, it's just not the way that that behavior is used and not the way that it evolved. So we do a lot more animal study of animal behavior in the wild now, which is much harder. And it's much harder because we can't control the environment. And quite often, if you're working with wolves or dolphins, you can't even see the animals. So it's, it's really, it's, it's a big problem. It's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult job. But yes, in my field, for instance, I work with, on wolf communication. There's a limited amount you can do in a zoo. You can certainly study the details of, of their calls and, and at least you can see who's howling and, and who isn't. But there's no doubt that an animal that ranges over hundreds of square kilometers, you know, can, can walk 20 kilometers a day. You, you can't expect their behavior in a zoo to, to reflect that in any way, and particularly with howls, which are a call that's designed to travel many kilometers. <laughs> Why would you do that if you're in a zoo, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's, um, it's, a big, it's a big constraint. It just shows how the, the areas of science that we don't understand are not just you know, physics and astronomy and, and things like that. There's so much we still don't understand about animals, so much. Especially animals in the wild. Especially yeah. animals in the wild, yeah. And uh, in your papers, you mentioned different uh, ways of uh, tracking wolves. And, well, uh, that applies to other animals as well. Um, one of the ways uh, would be tagging them. What's the issue with tagging animals? So first of all, why are we doing that? Why do we want to know where uh, each single wolf is and the dynamics uh, over time of uh, their movement, uh, things they say and uh, how how they go, where, where they go, what they do. Why, why do we want to know that? For, for what's the reason for that? Tagging animals is a really important research tool because if you have an endangered species, for instance, mm. um, you need to know what habitat it uses. So most endangered species are endangered because of habitat degradation and, and deforestation and, and, and fragmentation of their habitat. So we need to know what habitats they prefer, what habitats they, they, they avoid. Otherwise, it's very difficult to conserve them. So, so, so tagging for understanding how much animals move, where they move to, what sort of territories they move through, is a very important tool. Um, there are some species like wolves where there's a lot of conflict between humans and, and, and the wolves. Now, if we want to conserve wolves and keep them as an important part of our ecosystem, which we do because they play a very, very important role in our ecosystem, and a healthy ecosystem has to have a top predator there. Otherwise, what happens? Oh, otherwise then, then you get the grazers and, and browsers um, um, overpopulate and, and deer populations explode and then they damage the, 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 the vegetation and, and the habitat as a whole is, is degraded as a result. Otherwise, the alternative is to bring more hunters, human hunters, which is not practical, right? It's really not practical. I yeah. mean, the, 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 the nice thing about, about wolves, at least, is their population is regulated by the supply of prey. So, so it actually the ecosystem will find a, a good balance. And you see that. So when wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park, the, the whole environment was transformed and many degraded environments just, just became much more, much more diverse and much more complex. So we want, we want a variety of animals around. We want predators around, but they come into conflict with humans and they, they might eat sheep or, or, or calves or something like that. So 
there's also an interest in in understanding wolf movement and wolf communication so as to think of strategies to 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 reduce the the conflict between humans and wolves um so that's why that's why you would want to tag and study these animals uh, of course the disadvantages are that it's a very invasive process you have to catch the wolf mm. you do not want to be caught um either dart them from from a helicopter which is incredibly expensive um or you catch them in 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 leg hold traps which which can which can really harm them you know mm. they can cause injury so so it's something you want to do as little of as possible but there are passive ways of of monitoring these animals as well so that's what i do so i do i i um, work on tracking wolves and and primates and and other animals using passive acoustics so we're just listening to the sounds that they make and then locating them from from listening to the sounds and and calculating the the, the position where 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 they are in terms of uh, costs if you had to compare tagging versus uh, acoustic uh, triangulation whatever method you use what kind of uh, um, estimates can we do an estimate in terms of cost not really we, uh, so some kinds of tagging are much more expensive so as i said yeah, helicopter helicopter very expensive yeah. Um, but then again, if you're in a very, very large environment like Yellowstone, where it's not practical to, to lay out traps and, and check them all the time, then that's the only way to do it. Uh, these collars are expensive as well. Um, you know, GPS collar is, is, is expensive. I think that the, it's not really a question of cost though. I think that the mm. real benefit is, is the fact that it's non-invasive. We don't need to burden the animals. I mean, you know, you, 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 you're careful to use collars that, that that don't interfere too much with with them but still it's it's you know there's a big battery and and it and it does it does um they're gonna feel it right maybe they want to remove it no but you know you use something that that that, that you know won't uh won't interfere too mm. much but still that limits the battery life um, yeah. and and they have to fall off after a certain amount of time and be recovered it, it's quite an intensive operation And instead, is an acoustic location, how does it work? What different uh, tools can you use? What's the principle well, been, of uh, the, the method? How does it work? So there's been, there's been a lot of interest in, in just in studying soundscapes, just in studying the sounds of the environment, because it's clear that animals are greatly affected by sound, either the communication or the, the ambient sound. You can think of, um, of whales and, and, and dolphins and the effect of sonar and, and um and of, of uh, surveying, so seismic surveying in the oceans have a huge effect on, on these animals. So it's important to understand the sound environment in which animals live. Um, but what we do is, is uh, actually locating the animals. So we triangulate their position by, by using multiple, multiple uh, recording devices and looking at the time difference between them. So sound arrives at the different recording devices at different times because sound travels quite slowly in air. So we can then work backwards and calculate where the animal was when it was howling or, or calling. And uh, the accuracy you get is around uh, 30, 60 meters. Well, that sounds big compared to GPS. Well, GPS is a different method, but um, where is the, the source of error coming from? So these, if you're talking about wolves, um, and those numbers you're quoting are for wolves, a wolf howl will carry many kilometers. It could be three kilometers away, four kilometers away. So we're talking, we're really talking about very, very long distances. Mm. Um, and if you're trying to triangulate something over, you know, when you have three or more uh, detectors that are three or four kilometers away, there's obviously, there's going to be some, there's going to be some error there. But it doesn't really matter because we're only really interested in 
the large scale movement of these animals. So are they, you know, in this part of the territory or in that part? Of the, how are they moving around their territory? How are they calling to each other when they are in that territory? Um, I, I, th- I think that image is pretty good, really. Okay. <laughs> Uh, do you think it's uh, is there any effect from the fact that the uh, sound speed is affected by the temperature? No, very no? little. Very, very, very little. Very little effect. I mean, that, that's that. Uh, um, and even and even elevation, unless you're in 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 really very mountainous territory, it, it, it has a very minor effect. But with elevation, you you would get information. Do you get in, the information on elevation from the GPS? Yes. Yes. So you can build those. Triangles. But those triangles are very skinny triangles, so it makes very little difference. Uh, you know, three kilometers uh, on the base and a few meters or even tens of meters makes no difference. Yeah. How do you differentiate between the voices from different indi- individual wolves? Uh, do you know the difference? Well, we know, we know for, this is one of the things you can do in captivity. Because if you cannot do that, how are you going to count them? Well, um, based on the position, yeah. But. Yeah, you can use the position and you can use overlapping, obviously. Two howls that are overlapping aren't from the same individual, um, so you can you can try and survey them that way to some extent. We know from working in zoos. Here's something you can do in zoos that that different animals, different individuals, do have different howls, so you can distinguish them. Um, it's very challenging to do in the wild, though, because we can't be sure. We could we could apply those methods and and try and and see if there are different different animals there. Um, but it's very difficult to be sure so mm. this is this is an active this is a field of active research this is one of the things we're doing now is to see whether we can use our passive technique to identify individuals in the wild even when you can't see them even when you can't tell who's actually howling it's not so easy and of course then you need a way to verify that uh, your prediction is correct so you would need to place cameras somewhere but how many cameras are you going to place right? right so so one way to do it is is as you say to use cameras if you know the kind of places where the wolves tend to to to, to gather which mm. we do by and large so in the summer once the pups are, have left the dens and and are uh, and are a bit more active then the wolves start howling at particular sites so you can put lots of cameras there and and then use that to see which individual is howling out yeah. or maybe you could place some chicken in a place and then put the cameras there and make sure the wolves go there uh, to get the chicken. You could, but but interestingly, we it's quite easy to know, to, 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 if you have a well-studied population, then, then you usually know where they're going to be. I'm curious to know, how does it work when you, when you go on an expedition to observe these wolves? And how do you plan for it? Uh, do you bring a crew with you? Because of course you need to have people helping you. I mean, these are rough places, right? How does it work? Well, it's, it's, um, Yes, there's always there's always a a group of of people needed. Lots lots of stuff to be done. There's no shortage of 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 work to be done. Um, but you'd be surprised. Mostly, it's quite it's quite straightforward. So in the states, in the USA, where where we do a lot of our work, wolf work. Um, so that's either in Yellowstone, Yellowstone mm. National Park, which has quite good infrastructure, or other parts of of um, of the USA that that are less well developed and 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 it's more a little bit more going out into the wild then then yeah it's it's a, it's a question of of um of getting out there and and placing recording devices and then picking up sd cards and so on and and what we tend to do with wolves there are two options you can either work in in the summer when um when they're howling a lot and 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 you've got a pretty good idea where they're going to be or you can work in the winter when you can track them in the snow um, so we tend to work in 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 the winter a lot. So at least we know where they are from from looking at the tracks. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's fantastic to be to be out there 
with the wolves, surrounded by the wolves. There's nothing quite like like being in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter, and, and have wolves howling around you. That's quite an experience. Have you had uh, close encounters? I've, I've, I mean, you have the occasional incidental close encounter, so a wolf happens to cross the road or something like that. But then they um, run off. But then they run off, yes. So, so wolves are extremely shy. They, they really don't want to have anything to do with people. Um, mostly if you're actually observing them, um, you, you're a couple hundred meters away at least. Um, sometimes more, sometimes much more. So, so um, close encounters are, are pretty much incidental. Yeah. So you, there are no risks involved, do you think? But there's always risks involved. Oh, yeah. Any wild animal can be dangerous, right? It's the uh, most dangerous wild animal I've come across has been a wild boar, but, um, but wolves are not a, particular, not a particular danger. They're very, they really are very wary of humans, which they should be, you know, this, this is, this is the way that a lot of a lot of top predators are. It's not an easy life for a wolf. They know they know what they eat. They eat elk and they eat white-tailed deer and 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 bison and that's what they focus on. And they're not going to come and eat humans because they just don't know what these are and, and they they're, they're cautious. They're wary. Yeah, probably game meat tastes better than humans, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's been a single wolf fatality in in the United States in a hundred years. Ah, okay. What do you do? You camp there? Um, you're just, where, where do you stay when you go to this wild place? Like... <laughs> no, usually there are places to stay. Ah, okay. and, but it's a lot of driving then to, to, mm. um, to the site. I mean, we're, we also work with, so we're, we're working with Gibbons as well. So we're going to Vietnam to, to work with Gibbons and that's a little place to stay. And, and then it's just a question of hiking to, to the sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Must be amazing, and certainly the the kind of work uh, that you're doing is very different from uh, people that work on artificial uh, things, uh, people that work in labs with uh, building devices, which is my experience. Uh, what kind of different uh, perspective do you think you got from working with the animals in terms of a vision of the world? Uh, how has that uh, changed you? It's a vision of the world that is that is different from from what most people experience. I mean, I. The, there's no doubt that that things that I see and things that I do are very different from what most people experience. Other scientists, for sure, yeah, yeah, um, and and that does give a different a, a different a view of a not a world without humans because there are humans everywhere, but it does give you the perspective that humans aren't really necessary. We tend to think, you know, mm. when we live in, in the cities and we work in our lab or we work in our, in our office, everything revolves around humans. But when you go out into the, into the mountains and uh, it's dark and it's snowing and there's life all around you and it doesn't need you. It really doesn't. And it, everything is getting on with its, with its life and the little creatures scurrying under a, under a log and they're just fine. We're, we're, we're really incidental. Very incidental to that. Hmm. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Eric. Um, thank you so much for your time. It has been a great pleasure. Yeah, it's great fun. Thank you. Thank you.